So we welcome you to this brand new series, a 10-part series that we've entitled The King Size Challenge. We're going to be challenging our lives with the lives of 10 Old Testament kings, and the subtitle of the whole series is Facing the Defining Moments of 10 Old Testament Kings. Now, what I need to do as we begin, I need to bring to you, provide for you an overview of Old Testament history because I've got to set the messages you're going to hear in historical context. So you need to put on your thinking cap. I will only do this once, okay? But just allow this to kind of sink into your heart. 2000 BC, long time ago, right? Abraham, in a place called Haran, north of modern-day Israel, God calls him to leave there, Mesopotamia, and go to the land of Israel. And here, as Abraham uh, makes this trek, God reveals to him a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. There's a famine in the land at that point which causes Abraham to go further south to Egypt. Eventually, the 12 brothers who would become the 12 tribes of Israel also make their way to Egypt. They are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 1446 BC, God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and they wander in the desert for 40 years. 1400 BC, Joshua, Moses' aide, leads the children of Israel into the promised land. This is known as the period of conquest. And the 12 tribes settle into 12 distinct locations in the land. After then, the period of the judges, at 1100 BC, Israel, as a nation of these 12 tribes, requests, they really demand a king. We want a king. And so the united monarchy is born, and it begins with the first king, Saul, the second king, David, and the third king over the united monarchy, Solomon. 931 BC, Solomon dies, and the kingdom at that time then splits. It divides, and this is known as the period of the divided kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom is known as Israel. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. And here is a map. You don't see the tribes as such in here, but you do see the region in the north, Israel, to the south, Judah. The north is composed of ten tribes, and the south is composed of two tribes, namely Judah and Benjamin. Now, each of these kingdoms, the northern and the southern, each respectively have a total of 20 kings during this divided kingdom period. All 20 of the northern kings do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you can tell what time period of history this was like. Of the 20 southern kingdoms, kings, only three of them, of the 20, do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And to be completely accurate, there was actually one queen. Her name was Athaliah. 
She was part of the southern kingdom, and she also did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So out of the 40 total kings, only three of them did what was right. The northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed in 722 B.C. by Assyria due to their sin and rebellion. The southern kingdom, known as Judah, well, they last a little bit longer. They are destroyed in 586 by Babylon, also due to their sin and rebellion. Now, we're going to be studying 10 of the total 40 kings who served during this period called the divided monarchy. We'll be studying three kings from the northern kingdom and seven kings from the southern kingdom. Everything that we're going to be studying will have taken place between 931 B.C. and 586 B.C. So we're talking about a, a span of years of 345 years where these kings fit within. Now you say, Mark, what does this have to do with my life? Everything. What do you mean? These kings were real people, just like you and me. And these kings are incredibly relatable. It's unbelievable how you relate to them. We have a whole bunch in common with them. Now watch this. When the writer of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which contains uh, what we're going to be studying about these kings, when that writer compiled the stories about these 10 kings, and by the way, we don't know who the writer is. He's never identified. But whoever the author was, he couldn't write everything about these kings' lives. I mean, that would be impossible. He had to be selective, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write down what was most significant about these kings' lives. Just picture uh, if you were given the responsibility to write, let's say a one or two page summary of an ancient king, what would you write? What would you include? You would probably give the king's name, his relation to his predecessor, his date of ascending the throne. You might list his mother's name, the length of his reign, the place of his reign, his death, maybe his successor. And watch this. This is what is included in the lives of all 10, 20 of these kings that we're going to be studying. But what you would always, always provide if you were to write the story, think of reports you've written on any historical figure. You would always provide, watch this, the most significant moment, the most, you know, crescendo, just the, the, what I'm calling the defining moment you would always include, the most memorable, the most dramatic the most defining moment is what you would always include and which is included in each of these kings' lives. Now, guess what? All of us have faced, are facing, and will continue to face defining moments. A defining moment is a moment in your life that defines your life. A defining moment is a moment that's so significant that your life will go one way or another depending on how you face that moment. A defining moment is a moment so important to you that if someone were to write a report on you, it's what they would include in that one or two-page summary. The moments in your life where you went one way or another, a, a defining moment in my life, for example, who would I marry? Marrying Tracy was an absolutely defining moment in my life. The defining moment 
moments of these 10 kings that they faced, guess what? They're basically the same defining moments that you're going to face. And you can learn how to face your defining moments by seeing how these 10 kings, 20 kings, well, the ones that we're going to be studying 10, how these 10 kings face their defining moment. Some of them face their defining moments successfully, others unsuccessfully. But you can learn from their success or their failure. Interestingly, the key, the key verse for this whole series doesn't come from the book of First and Second Chronicles or First and Second Kings. It comes from actually the Apostle Paul as he looks back on these ten Old Testament kings' lives. And he says this in Romans 15, 4. He says, everything written in the past, okay, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So my prayer for you, and my prayer is that you'll be here in all 10 of these messages, but that through this series, you will find teaching and encouragement and hope for your defining moments. This is an important series for your life. It's already rocked my world as I prepared. Uh, the first four messages are done, and I'm just like, wow. In a moment, you're going to face your first king size challenge. You'll notice if you go to the first slide, if you're able to do that, that you have a modern-day person facing an ancient king. That's the picture. Every Sunday, you're going to pre be presented with a face-off, so to speak, spiritually. How are you going to face this defining moment that this king faced? Will you face it successfully? My prayer is yes, that you will pass the test, so to speak, every single Sunday. In a moment, you're going to come face-to-face -face with our first king-size challenge. How are you going to do with this king-size face-off? We're going to find out in just a moment after a discussion question. Here's your first question. Can you share one defining moment in your life, you know, since birth? I had to add that because I know you guys. You'd say, yeah, I was born. So since birth, after you were born, between now and up to this point, would you share a defining, just one defining moment that you would say, this is a defining moment of my life? Share that at your tables, and then we're going to introduce you to Rehoboam. Go for it. Okay, this morning, you'll notice the title on your outline, Rehoboam's King Size Blunder. So this morning, the Bible is going to challenge us, all of us, to face Rehoboam's king-size blunder. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a blunder, okay? We all have, okay? Yes, we have. A few years back, um, one time I borrowed my friend's pickup truck, and it had this camper shell on it. And I, I used his truck to move a 500-pound 500, 500 weight set into my garage. So I back up into the garage, and I unload the weight set. Well, after you unload the weight set, the truck is lighter, so it rises up. And I just, like, take off, speed out of the garage, and rip the whole top of the camper shell off. That is a blunder, ladies and gentlemen. But let me ask you a deeper question. Have you ever made 
a king-size blunder? Now, that's a different question. You see, a, a king-size blunder is a mistake with potentially catastrophic consequences. And watch this. You and I are going to face defining moments in our lives where a king-size blunder is just inches away. And if we're not careful, the consequences to our life and even to others could be absolutely catastrophic. Hey, you could get pregnant. You could go into really big debt. I mean really big debt. I mean, you could put your whole family into jeopardy. You could go to jail. You could lose your good reputation that you've taken years to build. You could lose your marriage. You could lose that child. You could potentially sever that relationship to the point where, wow. Let's see if you can spot King Rehoboam's king-sized blunder. 1 Kings chapter 12. Hopefully you are there. Let's begin in actually 1 Kings 11 and verse 42. I want you to see some things. Rehoboam, our first king, he served as the first king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he served from 931 B.C. to 913 B.C., so he reigns 18 years. How did his reign come about? Well, 1 Kings 11.42 tells us Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel 40 years. Now, this is the United Kingdom. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Some of you were with me in the city of David just a few months ago, right? You picture that on the southern side of Jerusalem. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam was his eldest son, the heir apparent, and he becomes king. Now, as we read about Rehoboam's beginning reign, leading up to this defining moment of his king-size blunder, I want to point out several things here. I want to point out five ways we can all relate to King Rehoboam. And I'm kind of doing this because I want you to see you can relate to all these kings. I'm not going to do this for all the kings, but for this one I am. Five ways you can relate to this king. First of all, we are not kings, uh, but all of us have been granted a position of privilege, right? Now, Rehoboam is given a very special position of privilege, he would be king. And we see that in chapter 12, verse 1, that he's on his way to be crowned. Rehoboam went to Shechem. Now, Shechem, shouldn't that be Jerusalem? Well, yeah, he became king by his father Solomon after Solomon died, and he's living in Jerusalem. But Shechem is kind of the capital of the northern ten tribes, so to speak, a very important city. Some of you were with me in Shechem just a few months ago. That's where Jacob's well is, Samaria, Mount Ebal, and Gerizim, the same location. You know it. You can picture it. Very important political city at this time. And, and it, it's about 30 miles north of, uh, here's Jerusalem, there's Shechem. And he makes this trek, Rehoboam does, and he's going there because the Israelites invite him to come there to make him king. Now, we aren't kings. But every single person in this room has a very special position of privilege. Some of you are grandmas and granddads, parents. You are, some of you are bosses. You are all Christian leaders. Everyone here has a position. You're a student. It doesn't matter. You're a teacher. 
all of us have been granted a position of privilege. Second observation, there will come times we will be presented with a very significant decision we need to make, right? And for Rehoboam, he has his significant decision. I want you to re hear about it in verses 2 to 4. When Jeroboam, well, no, who's this? A new character, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, what's this? Jeroboam, we're going to study next Sunday. I'm not just going to a little bit right now by saying this. Jeroboam was Solomon's servant, a very eloquent communicator, and he did a lot of Solomon's bidding for the northern ten tribes. He had relationships with these ten tribes, and the ten tribes invite Jeroboam to be their spokesperson to negotiate something with the new, new king, Rehoboam. That's all I'm going to say right now. So when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. We'll talk about that next Sunday. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, okay, this spokesperson, and he and the whole assembly of Israel, the key leaders of these ten tribes, went to Rehoboam there in Shechem and said to him, this is their request, your father put a heavy yoke on us. I mean, Solomon, this guy was a builder, right? He worked these these 12 tribes, and he taxed them like you can't imagine. And God warned Israel that this would happen. But they had no idea the extent to which Solomon would do this. And they say, your father put a yoke on us, a heavy yoke. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that you put on us, and guess what? We'll serve you. So here, here's a very important point in Rehoboam's life as a brand new king. He has a very significant decision. How is he going to treat Jeroboam and the thousands of Israelites represented by these ten tribes? They had a simple request. Lighten our workload, lessen our taxes, and we will serve you as our king, just like we serve Solomon. Just make it easier on us. And we at times will be presented with a very significant decision we need to make. Now, it may be with our finances. It could be with our kids. It could be something about a relationship with our health. Whatever. Significant consequences, though, hang in the balance depending on how we respond, how we make that decision that we're presented with. Three, it's wise to take our time in order to make a good decision. And I see some wisdom with Rehoboam. Verse 5, Rehoboam answered. Well, he hears the request. He says, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. All of us agree. Haste makes waste. If you need to make an important decision, take time. Give some thought to it, and that's what Rehoboam's doing. Number four, it's wise to consult wise people to make a good decision. And again, we commend Rehoboam. Verse six, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father during Solomon's lifetime. Now, you think about this. Solomon was the wisest man who ever walked the earth, second only to Jesus Christ. And think about these advisors. You are called to advise Solomon. Think about how wise you have to be. These guys were wise beyond imagination. And Rehoboam is doing a wise thing. He goes to these elders who served his father. And he says, how would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Wow. The elders reply, if you go easy on these people, lighten their load, the, tri the ten tribes will love you, Rehoboam. You will be embraced as king over all the tribes of Israel. The kingdom will stay united. 
But watch what happens next. This is Rehoboam's defining moment. I don't know if he saw it as that or not, but it was. And sometimes you don't even see that a defining moment is right before your eyes. Who is Rehoboam going to listen to? Whose advice is Rehoboam going to follow? Number five, it's arrogant and unwise to reject the advice of wise elders. Look at verse five. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who he had grown up with him and who were serving him. Now, the way it's written, it implies that Rehoboam decided in advance to reject the advice of the elders. He only consulted the elders as a formality. He had already made up his mind about rejecting their advice and accepting and consulting the advice of his friends. And look what happens. He asked them, his friends, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to me, to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Well, tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Wow. You know what the advice of his friends was? Raise the bar, Rehoboam. Be the man, Rehoboam. Rain down fire. Throw down the gauntlet. This is Rehoboam's defining moment. Who is he going to listen to in this critical moment? Whose advice is he going to follow? Now watch this. You are going to face the same defining moments in your life as well. Many times in your life. Who are you going to listen to? Yes, you are not a king, but watch this. There will be times, no matter, I see young people out here all the way to, you know, seniors, so to speak. This is good because you're going to be facing this defining moment. Who are you going to listen to when it comes to making a significant decision where your life will go in one way or another? Let me give you Rehoboam's blunder. I'll put it in the form of a phrase. It's this. Choosing to listen to the advice you want to hear and rejecting the advice you need to hear. Think about that. Isn't that tempting? This is ultimately what Rehoboam is doing. He's rejecting the advice he needs to hear, and he's accepting and listening to the advice he just wants to hear. It's so tempting to listen to the advice you want to hear and completely reject or ignore the advice you need to hear. Wow. It's so easy to fall prey to Rehoboam's king-size blunder. Why talk to your parents when you can talk to your friends? Your friends will tell you what you want to hear. Why talk to your pastor when you can go to that guy or gal at work and they'll tell you exactly what you want to hear? Why talk to your spouse when you can talk to your friends at the gym? <laughs> they'll tell you what you want to hear. Don't talk to your wife or husband. They'll tell you what you need to hear. Why talk to your best friend who knows you, loves you, cares for you, stood by you? When you can talk to that new friend 
that new girlfriend, that new boyfriend that you've known for just one month, hey, they'll tell you what you want to hear. You see, our first king-sized challenge is this. Do you struggle with Rehoboamitis? Wow. I told you this series is going to boom, hit us right between the eyes. As you look in the mirror, are you acting like Rehoboam? Some of us continue to repeat the king-sized blunder of Rehoboam. And this is staining a little bit. We know we need to change, but we keep on seeking the advice we want to hear and we keep avoiding the advice we need to hear. We know we need to change our attitude, but we keep siding with people who tell us we're okay. We know we need to change our diet, but we keep hanging out with people who affirm our bad eating habits. We know we need to change our parenting, but we continue associating with parents who have worse parenting tendencies than us because it makes us feel good about us. We know we need to change our spiritual lives, but we hang out with people who accept our compromise, our low standard, and we avoid people who make us feel convicted about our spiritual life. <laughs> you see, Rehoboam's king-sized blunder, it can take on dozens of forms and shapes and issues and topics, fill in the blank. Notice what happens if we continue to face Rehoboam's king-sized blunder the way Rehoboam did which was not to face it at all. Four things result when we reject the advice we need to hear. The first thing I see is harshness. We will treat people harshly. Look at verses 12 to 14. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. He said, go away for three days. They come back. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people, what does it say? Harshly rejected the advice given him by the elders. Harshness. You see, if we go on rejecting the advice we need to hear, you know what it results in? A harsh spirit. We will begin to treat people harshly. We'll treat our spouse harshly, our kids harshly, employees harshly, waiters harshly, people in general we will treat harshly if we continue to just listen to all that we want to hear and reject what we need to hear. Second is we'll become incorrigible. What does that mean? Huh. That means we will refuse to listen. We will not be teachable because we're showing that we're unteachable by refusing to listen to what we need to hear. In verses 15 to 16, we see this. So the king did not listen to the people. Verse 16, when all, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to him, wow. You see, if we go on rejecting the advice we need to hear, we'll become incorrigible, unteachable. People will begin to see us as someone, watch this, who refuses to listen to the truth. We're going to be labeled someone that just, they're unwilling to listen to reality. And they're becoming more and more harsh and more and more incorrigible, unteachable. 
Now, if you read in verse 15, all of this was from the Lord, even what's going on in Rehoboam's life. The king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord that he had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the prophet. If you go back to chapter 11, verse 29, you see that that prophet prophesied that the kingdom would split and ultimately be destroyed because of the sin of Solomon and idolatry. And so it's playing out, but nevertheless, Rehoboam is responsible for his decisions. And it's resulting in him being harsh and incorrigible. The third thing that results, if we reject the advice we need to hear, is alienation. We will begin to alienate people from us. Verse 16, notice, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? That's the southern kingdom. All the northern tribes are going, what share do we have? What in common do we have now with Jerusalem? What part in Jesse's son, the southern kingdom? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. Now watch this. Rehoboam's rejection of what he needed to hear resulted in this, at this moment, the split happens. The division of an entire nation, watch this, over one million people, minimum at this time in history, takes place. Rehoboam alienated, watch this, in that moment, at minimum 800,000 people. I tell you, you refuse to listen to what you need to hear in time. I've seen it as a pastor, beloved, breaks my heart. You'll alienate your wife or your husband, and it'll head to divorce. You'll alienate that son or daughter. If you continue to refuse to listen to what you need to hear, you'll get harsh. You'll become incorrigible and teachable. You'll alienate people. Your spouse, employees, friends, people in general, people who care for you, family members, pastors, potentially even the Lord. He remains faithful to us, but we can alien ourselves from God because of our attitude. This is a critical, critical defining moment in all of our lives. The fourth consequence of refusing to listen to what we need to hear is rebellion. We will push people to rebel against us, and we see that in verses 18 and 19. I don't even think King, King Rehoboam still knows the extent of the damage he's done, which often happens with a person who is only listening to what they want to hear. Verse 18, King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of his forced labor. Now, he's still in Shechem, but all Israel stoned this guy to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. He's like, I, I got to get out of here. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Wow. Ultimately, he pushes them so far, they kill the guy that's over his labor, and he flees. Four consequences when we reject the advice we need to hear. I'd like you to talk about these for a little bit before we move on. How have you seen these four things result when someone refuses to listen to the advice they need to hear? Harshness, incorrigible, alienation, rebellion. Talk about that. Go for it. Okay, final question this morning. How do you face Rehoboam's king-size blunder? I mean, how do you face this? This is our first king-size face-off, critical defining moment. 
What do you do if you find yourself choosing to listen to what you want to hear and rejecting what you need to hear? What do you do if this is where you're at this morning in your life? I'm not talking about your husband or wife. They need to change, or you're watching this on video right now, someone in your small group needing to change. What do you do if this is you? You know that in your heart you're struggling with this, and we all, to a degree, struggle with this. I'm going to tell you a story, my story, in a little bit, how recently I've been struggling with this. We are all prone to rationalize and to just love what we want to hear and reject what we need to hear. Wow. What do you do? Well, I want to give you three steps. If you're like, man, I am just falling into Rehoboam's king-size blunder, Pastor. What do you do? How do you pull out of it? How do you face this king-size challenge and come out victorious? You can. Three things. Number one, you got to A is admit to yourself, to God, and to watch this others. And what I mean by others is someone that you have fallen into Rehoboam's blunder. You got to be honest with yourself. You got to be honest with God, and you got to be honest with one other brother or sister, or a parent if you're watching this on video, or your spouse, whatever, close friend. You got to be honest and say, man, I've blown it. And, and I like verse 5 because, you know, Rehoboam answered at the beginning, go away for three days and then come back to me. That was good. That was wise. And maybe you need to get away for three days or three hours or go home from church today and just get away and think to yourself and confess to God and someone else that guess what? You've been only listening to what you know you want to hear and rejecting what you need to hear. You know, the Bible says, Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his sins does not prosper. Well, how long do you want to keep going on not prospering? You want that to change but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. There is mercy for you, my friend, if you will be honest with God and someone else about your blunder. Because it's a blunder right now. Don't let it turn into a king-size blunder like Rehoboam. Catch it before you go too far. You gotta admit to yourself, God and others, someone that you've fallen prey into this trap. Second, you gotta believe that in Christ's strength you can face Rehoboam's blunder. You've got to believe you can face this, and you can. Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You do not have to stay in this rat trap that you're in. You can get out of it. Your life can change. You've got to believe you can change. You say, how? It's simple. You've got to admit and be honest, confess your sin to God. You've got to then believe that you can change, and you say, how am I going to change? It's really quite simple. Number three, you consult wise advisors and begin following the advice you need to hear. And Rehoboam did so good in verse 6. The king, Rehoboam, consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? What a great way that we need to follow. To come to someone who's wise and say, what should I do? I have made a mess of my life. I'm making a mess of my life in that area. You are wise. I need your wisdom. What do I do to pull out of I'm heading for a crash? And you listen to them because they're living it, and you do what they say. That's how you pull out. That's how you have victory over Rehoboam's blunder. You humble yourself before God, and so do I. 
we admit to someone else our faults. Lord, cleanse me. Get good advice. The Bible says this, Proverbs eleven fourteen: for lack of guidance, a nation falls. For lack of guidance, wise guidance, a marriage falls. A family falls. An individual falls. If we go on listening to what we want to hear and reject what we need to hear, but many advisors make victory sure. Get the right advisors. Wise advisors. So let me tell you about my Rehoboam blunder. My story um, recently came to light just, uh, I don't know, a month ago at one of our seminar 501 banquets. So we're sitting here. When we graduate from our life transformation seminars, there's a big banquet. And we sit around tables like this, and the banquet begins with an awesome meal. And so we're enjoying this food, and someone at my table says to me, so, Pastor Mark, what is your weakness when it comes to food? And I'd never been asked that question before. And six words came out of my mouth. Red velvet cake with vanilla ice cream. That's what came out of my mouth. I then proceeded to tell them the story that I am going to share with you right now, which is not easy to tell. My son's girlfriend one day brought over to our house this cupcake, the likes I've never seen before. And I bit into this cupcake, and I thought I'd went to heaven. I said, what is this? It's red velvet cake. And I said, this is awesome. One day later, I said, Luke, where is your girlfriend? I need more cake. I couldn't get red velvet cake out of my mind. I needed it. I craved it. I wanted it. I deserved it. One day, I'm shopping at Costco all by myself, and there I saw it. Not a cupcake, no, no, no. But an entire red velvet cake in all of its glory. I said, what could this be? I began salivating. I gently placed that cake into the cart. At checkout, the checker told me, quote, that will kill you, man. I refuse to even acknowledge the misinformed and derogatory comment. I placed the red velvet cake in my cart, put it in my trunk, brought it home, and placed it in the refrigerator. I thought to myself, this could only be more amazing with vanilla creamy ice cream. The mixture of refrigerated temperature red velvet cake with cold creamy ice cream is the greatest taste on the planet. It wasn't long before I began consuming all to myself in seven days an entire red velvet cake with creamy vanilla ice cream. It was red velvet cake. My red vanilla cake, red velvet cake with creamy ice cream, it was mine. My precious. I avoided 
the stares from my wife and boys <laughs> as they saw me consuming my red velvet cake with vanilla ice cream for dinner while they, unfortunate human beings, ate a healthy dinner. As I continued to tell my story at the 501 banquet, one lady said, and she's sitting right here, I can't believe this happens. You said to me, Pastor Mark, you're embarrassed about this weakness in your life, aren't you? And I, I'm turning red, and I said, I guess I am. And then came the clincher. One woman sitting at our table, across the table, is listening to my story, and she never said one word, and finally she spoke up, and she said these words. She said, well, Pastor Mark, if you're gonna die, you might as well die with a smile on your face. <laughs> at that moment, dagger to the heart, serious. I had known I needed to change, but I was choosing to listen to the advice I wanted to hear, and I was avoiding the advice I needed to hear. Why did she have to say such fateful words <laughs> at the 501 banquet? Why did I ever start life transformation seminars to begin with? <laughs> These were the things coming around my mind as I am battling with Rehoboam's blunder in my heart. What happened? Well, Honestly, I began to apply the ABCs to my own life. I began to admit to God and to others I had fallen into Rehoboam's blunder. I was listening to what I wanted to hear. I was rejecting what I, know, I knew I needed to hear. I believed that in Christ's strength, I could face my Rehoboam blunder, and I began to consult wise advisors and follow the advice I needed to hear. You say, how was it going? Well... Now, I no longer purchase an entire red velvet cake. I only purchased the cupcakes at Costco. And I only eat them for dessert once in a while. And that, ladies and gentlemen, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the sermon. Let's pray.